Chapter Seven of Fresh Every Hour by John Peter Tuey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. And so it came to pass that at the appointed hour, Jimmy, nonchalantly strolling along the promenade near the great stone tower on the Manhattan side of the bridge, cast a wary glance down towards the roadway and observed the express wagon slowly jogging along directly underneath. The driver, covertly glancing to the right and the left, reached behind the seat with a quick movement, fumbled for an instant with the hasp, and, after lifting back the lid of the box, resumed his two-handed control of the reins, perceptibly slowing up the speed of the wagon. The next instant the mischievous and uncannily human-looking head of a large-sized monkey appeared above the top of the box. He blinked for a moment in the strong sunlight, reassured himself that the driver was not watching him, leaped lightly to the roadway, and made for the network of the auxiliary cables which run from the main supporting cables of the great bridge. Following him came a procession of other monkeys of varying sizes and kinds, short tails and long tails, some with weird whiskers and others as devoid of facial ornament as a newborn babe all of them chattering and gibbering, each one intensely alive, and apparently determined on having the time of his or her young life, as the case might be. There were fifteen of them in all, and as they sprang out of the wagon, one by one, and started to join the venturesome leader of the expedition, they attracted the attention of scores of pedestrians, chauffeurs, and drivers. "'Hey there, young fellow!' shrieked a man on the promenade. Your gosh-darned zoo is escaping!" The driver stopped the wagon suddenly, turned around and proceeded to give a perfect imitation of a man in that particular frame of mind popularly known as a blue funk. He jumped to the roadway and tried to clutch the last of the escaping simians by the hind legs. That agile creature eluded his grasp and joined two of his brethren, who were chattering gaily at the base of the labyrinthian maze of cables and supports. By this time the first dozen of the monkeys had clambered aloft and were surveying the constantly increasing crowd of joyous onlookers from points of vantage anywhere from twenty to a hundred feet in the air. A policeman shouldered his way through the front ranks of the crowd and looked up at the galaxy of nimble apes. He was sputtering and fuming with rage. "'Come down out of that!' he yelled helplessly, shaking his club in an absurdly futile attempt to wield authority. The crowd roared with delight. One of the monkeys, still on the ground, darted toward him, leaped on his shoulder, and sprang from it to the nearest cable far above his head before he was conscious of exactly what had happened. He struck vainly at it with his stick. The crowd rocked with laughter. Two other policemen joined him, forcing their way with difficulty through the dense mass of pedestrians on the promenade. "'Maybe if we whistled at him, Dinny,' observed one of these sagely, "'they might come down.' The three guardians of the law proceeded to pucker up their lips and to emit a series of plaintive whistles which so startled the one-time denizens of the jungle that all of them, as if swayed by some common impulse, swung lightly to places ten or twelve feet higher. "'Sing him a little song!' shouted a ribald youth, and the crowd once more chortled with glee. At this juncture a police lieutenant arrived on the scene, attracted from a distance by the great congestion of traffic. 
more than two thousand persons were now gathered on the promenade and vehicular progress in both directions was clogged a long line of trolley cars was strung out to the east and the west and several hundred motor cars and trucks were stalled while their drivers crowded forward to enjoy the fun the lieutenant sized up the seriousness of the situation instantly he dispatched one of the patrolmen to telephone for the reserves and to send in a still alarm for the fire department and then turned to jimmy's willing tool the driver that individual still registering dazed bewilderment shrugged his shoulders when asked to assist in bringing down the escaped monkeys who were now festooned in irregular formation along the interlocking cables for a distance of several hundred feet most of them were swinging by their tails and otherwise comporting themselves with a supreme disregard for law and order i can't do a thing boss persisted the driver i don't know the first name of a single one of the bunch maybe if someone telephoned for the gink that owns em he might be able to bring em down and so it further came to pass that Signor Antonio Amado was reached on the telephone at Jollyland, that he swore lustily in three languages in simulation of great consternation, and that he promised to come to the scene of hostilities as rapidly as his touring car could bring him. When he arrived forty minutes later, the crowd had grown to ten thousand, and the greatest tie-up of traffic in the history of the bridge was in progress. The firemen from two hook-and-ladder companies were making ineffectual efforts to bring down the innocent disturbers of the great city's peace and dignity, and a certain press agent, watching the proceedings from a discreet distance, was enjoying the biggest emotional experience of a somewhat checkered and not altogether drab career. He was getting the same sort of thrill that comes to the playwright as he stands in the rear of a theatre during a tense scene of a play of his writing, and watches a great audience swayed by something he has originated. Jimmy noticed with keen interest that a group of newspaper men had already gathered on the scene, and that among them was no less a celebrity than Frank Malia of the Item the star feature writer of the eastern seaboard and a specialist in stories with a humorous angle jimmy knew that there were standing orders in the item office to let malia's stuff run and he felt reasonably sure of at least a column and a half in that particular paper it may be recorded that the arrival of signor amado resplendent in the snappy green and white hussar uniform he wore while directing the performances in his concession brought the festivities to a rapid conclusion. In response to sharply spoken words of command from the fierce-looking little trainer, the truant apes descended rather reluctantly from their perches and permitted themselves to be herded together once more into the wooden cage, the top of which was now securely fastened down, under the personal direction of the police inspector who had arrived to take charge of affairs a few minutes before. The great throng cheered the signor vociferously when he had finished, and stepped into his car. He bowed again and again, kissed his hand, waved his busby, and gave other indications of profound satisfaction with himself, and with what he felt to be the justly merited plaudits accorded him. Jimmy permitted himself to be swallowed up in the eddies of the dispersing crowd, as the signor's car whirled him back to Jollyland. The subsequent proceedings were all that the most sanguine and optimistic press agent could desire. 
The story landed with a big splash in all the evening papers, and four of the morning papers covered it with feature yarns running all the way from three-quarters of a column to nearly two columns in length. The longest story of all was written by Malia. It was a delightful bit of foolery, written in a spirit of satirical burlesque, and full of whimsical little touches that made it the talk of the week in journalistic circles. There was only one thing that marred the perfect symmetry of the general effect. While the fact that the monkey's temporary habitat was Jollyland was properly chronicled in headlines and in the body of all the stories, there was no mention made by name of Signor Antonio Amado except in one paper, and then his alliterative cognomen was atrociously misspelled and appeared as Andy Amato. He was referred to, of course, and described as well, but impersonally. Mention was made in one story of a funny little fellow who looked as if he had escaped from the chorus of a Balkan operetta, and Malia had called him a bandit king with the manners of a marquis and the sang-froid of subway guard. After glimpsing the evening papers and observing this omission, Jimmy had turned over the conduct of affairs in his office for the night to his assistant, hoping that the morning papers would use the signor's name. When he read the others at breakfast, his elation at the general success of his personally conducted enterprise was tempered somewhat by the prospect of an eruption from the Vesuvian temperament of the animal trainer. He wasn't particularly disturbed at this, because he had sized the signor up as a false alarm from the start, but it meant a disconcerting half-hour or so, and he was a little bit peeved that the fates should have allotted him anything that was not rosy and serene, on what should have been a day of general rejoicing and glad acclaim. McClintock met him at the entrance to Jollyland. The manager wore an anxious look. Tony's off the reservation, he confided. He did a series of flip-flops in my office a half-hour ago, and I understand that he's turning handsprings all around his arena at the present writing. He inquired about your health. I told him you had gone over to Philadelphia on a little business for me. Better stick to the office all day. He never keeps these things up for more than twenty-four hours. Grand little story, that, even if it did annoy the King of Beasts. End of chapter 7